0: Well, listen, there's a whole lot going on in the world. And I know that uh, everybody's kind of, you you got the COVID and then you got the riots and everything seems to be uh, going crazy. And tonight I wanted to take a step back and just let everybody be reminded of a very simple principle about our God. Uh, It's one thing to go through and have teaching and we're always going to do that. That's what we do in church. But I, I hope tonight to... Just just take a, a pause, spiritually speaking, and just refocus, recalibrate, and remind ourselves of a very important truth. I'm going to start off by giving you an illustration. Does anybody remember the golfer Lee Trevino? Lee Trevino was a golfer, and he was known for his humor. He was known to be a very, very funny guy. And one time he was trying to be funny, and he said, not even God could hit a one iron. It was so hard to hit that club. The next week, he was playing at the Western Open uh, in Chicago in 1975. And while he was on the 13th green, something amazing happened. You know what happened? He got hit by lightning. He's a professional golfer. One week after saying God God couldn't hit a one iron, he got hit by lightning at a tournament. Uh, They say that you have a one in 300,000 chance of in your lifetime getting hit by lightning. He got hit three times. Uh, by, I think that was trying to God get his attention. Uh, one time he was on the Johnny Carson show, remember the Johnny Carson show? And he was asked by Johnny Carson, you know, uh, what did you learn from getting hit by lightning on the golf course? And jokingly, he said, I learned that when the almighty wants to play through, you let him, you let him play through. He's always trying to be really funny. That means the group behind you, you let him on through. Uh, he, he, he did say that he never again said that he said God couldn't use a one iron. It was an amazing moment in his life. Have you ever had those amazing moments in your life? Well, if I asked you a question tonight, uh, what do you think about God? Do you find him amazing? What would you say? A.W. Tozier said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I want you to ponder that for a second. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So in terms of a priority... Where is God in your priority list in your life? First, second, third, fourth is even on the list at all. It's a very, very direct statement and a very challenging statement, one that we need to uh, pay attention to. So when we think about God, what do you think? What's the most important thing you think about the Lord? Tonight I want to look at what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 11, if you'll turn there, in your Bibles. Now Romans is known as the book of theology in the New Testament. If you want to know what we believe, the first eight chapters of Romans explain the gospel in great detail. The second eight chapters in Romans are more of an application. So we're in chapter 11. He's kind of doing some summaries here of what salvation is. In Romans 10 and 11, he's talking about God's using the nation of Israel to bring salvation to the world. It's a pretty heavy discourse on theology. And all of a sudden, after going through these heavy verses of Scripture, he stops. He puts the brakes on his thoughts, and he gives us what we call a doxology, or a time of, of words of praise. He moves from theology, or the study of God, to a doxology, which is a praise to God. And in the middle of this beautiful theological section, where he's bringing application of the gospel, he just stops. And we see that he is absolutely amazed by God. Let's read the words together. I'm going to read four verses, though we're just going to look at one of them tonight. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There's, a, there's some exclamation points in there. In other words, he's probably a lot more excited than Pastor Jeff just read. But he is so caught up by studying God that he couldn't help himself but give praise to God. Have you ever had those moments where you're just driving along and you just go, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You just have those moments. As I think about our culture today, we need some people to say this because everybody's just upset and angry and everybody's upset about their circumstances in life. Well, the Apostle Paul went through all kinds of stuff. He was in the sea, he was whipped, he was in prison, and he can say these words, something arrested his heart and his name was Jesus. And in the midst of this theology, he just gushes out, overflows with praise for the Lord. This should be a characteristic of the Christian. If you don't have an overflow of praise, you're not amazed by God. So in the midst of all that's going on all around us, I want us to be reminded that the number one job that we have is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors ourselves. And we're so amazed by Him in doing so. So what we're going to do is we're just going to look at verse 33. Theologians say it like this. His theology turns into a doxology. Okay? His study of God turns into the praise of God. And just because of the verse is so full of wonderful stuff, we're going to just look at three crucial points that come from this first verse, verse 33. If you're following along on your outline, here's point number one. The depth of God. The depth of God. Look what Paul says. Oh, the depth of the riches. Most commentators say the word riches there means grace. The depth of the grace of God. The, the grace of His wisdom and His knowledge. In other words... One of the things that we got, we've got to do as we go through life is we've got to take time and think and ponder and meditate on the depths of God. You know, most of us when we pray, we just pray for God to give us stuff, get us out of problems, get this thing fixed. What the Apostle Paul has been doing is he has been focusing on the character and the attributes of God. And he realized I mean, there's, there's so much depth here to who God is. You know, we think about a floor. Uh, We think about the bottom line. God has no bottom line. He's far beyond our ability to comprehend or understand. And the Apostle Paul's caught up in that. And he says these things about the depth of God. He says, the riches of his wisdom and the riches of his knowledge. So those are two wonderful words in Scripture. It means God possesses perfect knowledge and God possesses perfect wisdom. When you think about God, you've got to think to yourself, wow, God is perfect in knowledge. There is nothing he does not know. And wisdom is the application of knowledge. So there's not a bad decision that God ever makes. He has perfect knowledge, and therefore he makes perfect decisions. And the Apostle Paul steps back and says, it's unexplainable. It's unexplainable to think of a human being like this, but that's the way that God is. He says this in Isaiah 55.9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Again, A.W. Tozer, this is a little long, I'm going to try to read it, but it's a wonderful description of the perfect knowledge and the perfect wisdom of God. Listen to what Tozer says. God cannot learn. I love that line. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from eternity, he would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher be an archangel or a seraph, is to think of someone other than the Most High God, maker of heaven and earth. For God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible, in heaven and earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. And then he concludes, because God knows all things perfectly, He knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. God never discovers anything. God is never surprised. God is never amazed. I mean, can you think of a better description of the human mind trying to describe the infinite mind of God? So you and I, when we come to God, we come with a small God. We need to come recognizing the depths of God, His perfect knowledge and his perfect wisdom so many of us we come to god in fear and we feel like we need to explain the situation to him god you got to get this god you don't understand my dilemma in life where are you you read through the psalms and you'll see that uh, people are just crying out to god why have you left me where are you and seemingly it's god's absence that they that they conclude is there i want you to think about this for a second do you know how deep the ocean is? The deepest part of the ocean, in the Pacific Ocean, is 6.8 miles. And scientists who study this, I could be wrong on this one, but this is the best I could find, that to breathe air you can go as high as 10 miles and then it stops. There are ceilings and floors to the creation in which we live. But there's no ceiling or floor to our Creator. So the first thing the Apostle Paul is doing is he's stepping back. He's just talking about the plan of salvation. God did this, God did this for the Israelites, God's doing this for the Gentiles. And he's so blown away, he says, this is just mind-boggling to think of a God that can come up with this kind of stuff. He has no ceiling, he has no floor. He is an amazing God. So you and I have to remember, every day, the God we serve is perfect in knowledge, perfect in wisdom. We might not see it because of our circumstances, but it doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change his character. So the Apostle Paul is amazed by the depth of God. But he keeps going, and I love this part. The Apostle Paul is amazed, and here's point number two, by the decisions of God. Obviously, because God is perfect in knowledge and perfect in wisdom, he never makes a bad decision. Don't you wish that you always made perfect and wise decisions? Don't you wish your kids and your grandkids would make perfect and wise decisions? Your spouse, the people you work with. Don't you wish everybody made these kind of decisions? But God never makes an imperfect decision. Paul is amazed by the depth of God, but he's also amazed by the decisions of God. And I'm going to tell you, as you go through here, you're probably going to have some questions. The Bible uses a unique term in verse 33. Look what it says. How unsearchable his judgments. That unsearchable, the word judgments there means decree or decision. The word unsearchable there is only used one time in the whole New Testament. So the Apostle Paul is using a unique word to describe the decisions of God. And he says they're unsearchable. They're be above us. We have limits, ceilings, and floors. God doesn't have any, therefore, he's not limited in the decisions that he is making. His ways are so above ours that it's hard for we, we can't figure it out. It's unsearchable. We're trying to search for something that we cannot find unless God reveals himself to us. And yet, is there a more distinct part of the human sinful nature to describe God in terms that we think we should describe him with? Well, I think God is like this, and I think God is like this. You know, you'll you'll meet somebody that's never been in church, or they never read the Bible, or they never pray. But man, they're an expert in God. Remember one time I was walking down that road over by Miss Benny and Mr. Dan's house. And some guy, I saw he wouldn't come to church. He invited him sometimes and he wouldn't come to church at all, ever. And uh, I remember the conversation as if it happened, yeah, it happened 15, 20 years ago. I don't remember how long now, but he's, I asked him about the Lord and he said, yeah, 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 I'm interested in those things. I'm interested in those things. You know, just like, uh, and, and was very content with his answer. You know, when we search for God, it can be very, very confusing. I found this illustration, maybe this will help. A group of tourists spent hours one Saturday night looking for a missing woman in Iceland near the Elja Canyon. What happened is they were looking for this woman because they couldn't find her. But what they didn't realize is this woman had gone into a shop and changed clothes. And when she came back, she joined the search, not knowing that they were looking for her. She was looking for herself herself. Until she realized and they realized she had changed her clothes. And that's what happens when we try to search for God. It will be that kind of a confusing thing. Unless God revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ and through the word of God. We will be just as confused as that. These are very, very comforting words that we find um, in, in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. It's not us searching for him. He, he searched us and knows us. He, the psalmist says, you know, when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. And that text continues. It was John Wesley who said this. Now, keep in mind, I grew up in, at Wesley Methodist Church, a very, very liberal church now. Even was then, but I was always fascinated with John Wesley. He's an amazing man. Uh, he was a strong evangelical person, very disciplined. John Wesley said this. Give me a worm that can understand a man, and I will give you a man who can understand God. In other words, you can search and try to figure it out by yourself, but unless God reveals himself to us, we're not going to get it. We're going to be just like that woman who's looking for herself, didn't realize it. Listen how Isaiah describes God. In Isaiah chapter 40, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Watch. I love verse 13. You'll see this in this Romans 11 passage. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all nations are as nothing. Nothing. We put limits on God, but he's so far above us, so wiser, so more knowledgeable, for us to even insinuate that we can kind of describe him without him telling us about himself is an affront to his holy character. God makes decisions that we're not going to understand. But praise God... He's made them perfect for us, for our future. Let's finish this up. Look at the, first one, uh, the third one. We've looked at the depths of God, the wise decisions of God, the perfect decisions of God. Here's the direction of God. And here's where most of us get really, really bent out of shape. Look what it says. His paths are beyond tracing out. God's unexplainable. God's unsearchable. You see that words, those words there, beyond tracing out? In Greek, that's one word. It's untraceable. Uh, John MacArthur calls it untrackable, and I'll explain that in a second. Again, this word is only used one time in the whole New Testament. So the Apostle Paul is so amazed, he can only describe God's with with words that you can't find anywhere else in the New Testament. He's untraceable, he's unsearchable, he's unexplainable. Uh, Notice what this word means. It literally refers to footprints that are no longer trackable. The picture here is of of a hunter following an animal tracking an animal, and then all of a sudden, the tracks are gone. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. When God makes decisions, you're going to go so far in understanding, and then all of a sudden, you're not going to understand anymore. His judgments are beyond tracing out. His paths are beyond tracing out. So when we look at this text of Scripture, we see paths, that's that's directions that God makes. Have you ever been frustrated with some of the consequences or circumstances that have come into your life. And you you go before the Lord in prayer and say, God, why? This doesn't make a bit of sense. Let me tell you, God, how you should do this. Or let me help you out on some information you may not have. You know, we've all had these, what David Jeremiah calls bends in the road. I remember I heard a sermon on him not too long ago talking about he had uh, had gotten cancer. And he had to go to Minnesota and go through that whole thing. And he said, man, my ministry was at its height. Everything was perfect. And all of a sudden, I get cancer. And I'm just shut down. Why? Why would God do that to a person that's spreading the gospel? Or why would God allow that to a person that's spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ? I don't understand. Have you ever said, I don't understand? If you've ever said, I don't understand, then you would be like all of humanity. And the Apostle Paul came to the conclusion that you and I must come to when we don't understand. His paths are beyond tracing out. I saw this illustration about a missionary family who had gone to an Islamic country. They wouldn't name the country because it's so difficult over there for missionaries. And for 25 years, they toiled sharing the gospel and saw absolutely no fruit. Nobody became Christians in 25 years. And eventually the whole family was martyred for their faith. 25 years, serving the Lord in an Islamic country, and no fruit, no converts, in 25 years, and the whole family was martyred for their faith. Would you think to yourself, what a waste of time. You can't break into an Islamic country, you can't do anything, these people just wasted their lives. But historians tell us it was 70 years after that family was martyred, that an amazing outpouring of God's Spirit came upon the little villages in which they worked. And there was a revival that took place 70 years after 25 years of what was called fruitless ministry. Now, we look around and we'll say about some churches, oh man, God's lifted His hand off of that church, or God's lifted His hand off of that nation, or God's lifted this. God knows He's got perfect wisdom and perfect knowledge. He knows, he knows what He's doing. And he will reward faithfulness, as he did with those folks. But you're not going to be able to figure out what he's up to. Because he's God and we're not. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Joseph. I love it. I have been infatuated with the story of Joseph since I can remember reading the Bible. It had a connection between me and my own father. Because of the distance that was involved with me and my dad. And I'll never forget, you know, you look at Joseph's life and you see... You just see back and forth. He's loved by his dad. Just a special kid, given a robe. But he's hated by his brothers, and they throw him into this well. Can you imagine him sitting in that well, rejected by his own family members? Could die there as far as he knew. But then he's rescued by his brothers, sold as a slave, went into Potiphar's house, rose to the leadership positions in Potiphar's house, only to be falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, of making advances at her, which she denied. And for being righteous and saying no, Joseph ended up in prison. And while he was in prison, don't you think he probably said the same thing he said when he was in the well? (laughs) Lord, I don't understand. What's going on? But God was maturing Joseph's heart, bringing faith to Joseph's heart, preparing Joseph's heart for later fruitfulness. While he was in prison, two of Pharaoh's officials came to him. He interpreted their dreams. One was uh, murdered. The other one was uh, restored to his position. And, and Joseph said to him, please remember me. I'm in jail. I helped you out. Please remember me. You ever have somebody you thought would help you and they have, they've forgotten about you and didn't help you out after you did something kind for them? They owed you a favor? And they forgot about him. But Joseph made an important r- reminder for all of us Even though people will forget about you, God never forgets about you. Never forget that. And while he's in prison, waiting to be delivered, Pharaoh has a dream. And when Pharaoh has a dream, what happens? I love the passage. Go back and read it. It's one of my favorite verses of Scripture. What does Joseph do? He's been in prison. And he gets called, summoned to Pharaoh. The Bible says this. I love it. You know what he did? He shaved. He shaved. Wait a minute, aren't you dying to get out of prison? You've been in here too long, you've been forgotten about. He shaved. He had a peace that God was in control. His whole journey led him to that conclusion. And God prepared him to be second in command. And notice the the things that happened in Joseph's life. He went from famine, loved by his father, uh, prosperity, loved by his father, to famine, hated by his brothers. Famine, prosperity, famine, prosperity, famine, prosperity. And what happens in his life? Seven years of famine, seven years of prosperity. Joseph is the Hebrew name for Jesus. And when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ's life, you see a similar pattern. Though our Lord, of course, was sinless. You see this beautiful picture of leaving heaven, coming to earth, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, hated by men. Uh, I heard a sermon this week by John MacArthur, a fantastic sermon about how men will not like you. And Jesus was hated by men and they put him on a cross and he rose to the dead because of God's plan of salvation. When you look at these things, you're just kind of going, man, God, these decisions don't make sense in Joseph's life. Why would people beat Jesus? He was sinless. Why would they put him on a cross? He was sinless because God's decisions are higher than our decisions. And God had a direction, a plan that he wanted to go in. And the same thing applies to you and to me. God has a plan for us as well. And until we get to go be with the Lord, he's going to accomplish that plan. So be usable for him. So are you amazed by the depth of God? Are you amazed by the decisions of God? Are you amazed by the direction of God? We need to give him praise and glory and honor. We don't need to doubt him. We need to trust him, even when we don't understand. Because he's perfect in wisdom, perfect in knowledge. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are a good and holy God. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. I pray that you'll take this word that we've heard tonight, Lord, allow it to permeate our hearts so that our faith and trust in thee will grow. And we're careful to give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Corey, if you'll lead us in our closing song.